Welcome back to Season 3 of The Herd Podcast, Part 2 of our episode on the opioid epidemic. So, we left off last time on how the opioid epidemic came to be. Today, we'll focus on the aftermath of the opioid crisis and what the future holds in terms of opioid prescribing in the U.S. We especially want to discuss the field of pain medicine, both in terms of opioid prescribing as well as advancements in non-opioid therapies. So stay tuned for more. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome again. We previously discussed changes to federal regulations, the introduction of pain as a fifth vital sign, and the pressure this put on hospitals and physicians to prescribe, as well as the role of big pharma that you know played in the opioid crisis. So we briefly touched on the colloquial terms of doctor shopping, pill mills, and more. But today, we want to get more into what happened next. So let's talk about the three phases of the opioid epidemic. Dr. P? Yes. So the opioid epidemic has essentially had three phases. The first wave began with the prescribing of opioids in the 1990s with overdose deaths related to prescription opioids, which persisted into the late 2000s. The second wave began in 2010 with huge increases in deaths related to heroin. And then the third wave began in 2013 with big increases in overdose deaths related to fentanyl. So prescription opioids, heroin, and then fentanyl. And now there's even cases with fentanyl combined with heroin, cocaine, and other pills. So let's talk about why. The first wave is what we focused on in last week's episode and everything that occurred to set off this wave. And this first wave was able to spread extremely quickly, leading to the epidemic, because unlike illegal drugs trying to enter the market with organized drug traffickers, here, pharmaceutical companies backed by government organizations were promoting the drug. Physicians were prescribing, people were using, spreading, and diverting the drug. So there was no really crackdown, and the problem spread rapidly. Now, as all of the massive problems we mentioned last week became more clear, U.S. state and federal organizations started to clamp down on prescription opioids. They edited their guidelines, which we'll talk about more later, to make access more limited, and also made Purdue Pharma reformulate OxyContin to make it more difficult to crush or inhale. And this did help, but at the same time, heroin was becoming easily available, and many opioid users switched to heroin because it was just easier to get heroin than prescription opioids. And in fact, according to a study, people with a history of using prescription opioids were 13 times more likely to start using heroin than those with no history of prescription opioid misuse. Right. And this also made those who have access to prescription opioids be able to sell those opioids at higher rates in the black market because, you know, well, supply and demand. And this all led to the second wave in 2010, the increase in heroin use and heroin-related deaths. And finally, there was the third wave in 2013. So heroin dealers wanted to increase profits, so they began mixing in fentanyl. Now, fentanyl is much more potent than heroin. So for us as anesthesiologists, 
Fentanyl is a medication that we primarily use in the operating room in IV form for pain control during surgery. So for comparison, it's about 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And while it's mostly used in IV form in the hospital, there are also other formulations like patches that can be placed on the skin or lozenges that can be placed on the tongue. Either way, it's a medication that should be used extremely carefully and needs to be monitored. So mixing heroin with fentanyl led to the third wave. And fentanyl is now actually one of the most common drugs involved in drug overdose deaths in the U.S. In 2017, 59% of opioid-related deaths involved fentanyl, compared to 14.3% in 2010. So now let's talk about pharmaceutical companies and the changing federal regulations. In 2007, and again in 2020, Purdue Pharma pled guilty to federal charges about the misbranding of OxyContin. And as we previously mentioned, they paid $634.4 million to end the Justice Department investigation, as well as an additional $19.5 million to 26 states and the District of Columbia, and many more states filed lawsuits by 2018. The allegations against Purdue Pharma included denying the risk of addiction and overstating the safety and efficacy of opioids, thereby misleading physicians and the entire healthcare industry. Since then, Purdue Pharma added a black box warning to OxyContin. A black box warning is the highest level of warning that the FDA can place on a drug that they have approved. They also distributed over 400,000 brochures to healthcare professionals, including physicians and pharmacists, on how to prevent drug diversion and signs to look out for. They also cut their sales force in half and agreed to stop marketing to physicians. And lastly, they also developed a database to collect data for diversion and addiction rates and to track healthcare professionals who may be overprescribing. The Sackler family, the family behind Purdue Pharma, have thus far denied wrongdoing but have agreed in 2022 to pay $6 billion from their personal holdings in exchange for immunity from opioid lawsuits. But are all of these steps taken enough? No, unfortunately. For reference, the opioid crisis costs the U.S. over $1 trillion per year, with the cost in 2019 being $4.2 trillion in costs related to healthcare, loss of work, loss of quality of life, and the lives that were lost. And on the other side of that coin, federal regulations have been changing to reflect the opioid crisis. So the DEA has been cracking down on opioid prescribing, and there has been an increase in education and resources for physicians. So there are now mandatory courses that physicians have to enroll in um, dealing with opioid prescribing to learn more about safe prescribing, as well as how to spot drug-seeking behavior, as well as drug diversion. Now, it's important to note that drug-seeking behavior, which is where someone appears to want to obtain drugs to get high, is different from pseudo-addiction, a condition where a patient appears to be seeking drugs, but really it's just because their pain is inadequately controlled and the patient wants pain relief, so rather than a specific opioid therapy. And even the concept of pseudo-addiction has been challenged, but as pain physicians, we're trained to better be able to spot the difference. But, you know, it can often be difficult, particularly in common places where this occurs, like primary care physician offices in the emergency room. Exactly. This is where databases can also be useful. We use a database called iStop now to check each patient's controlled substance history. So iStop stands for Internet System for Tracking Overprescribing. And it was signed into the New York State Legislature in August of 2012. 
Now, 33 states, including D.C., Puerto Rico, and the military healthcare system are registered with the iStop system, making opioid prescribing more controlled and safe. And since we're on the topic of tracking of controlled substances, let's quickly touch upon the categories of controlled substances, also known as drug scheduling. So there are five schedules of drugs. Schedule one are the drugs with the most potential for abuse or addiction, while schedule five have the least, but not zero, just the least, uh, addiction and abuse potential. Schedule one drugs are those that currently have no accepted medical use and have a very high rate of abuse. So think heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and more. Interestingly, marijuana is also a Schedule 1 drug, but this will likely change. We will also have another episode on marijuana and pain as well. Schedule 2 drugs are drugs with high potential for severe psychological and physical dependence, so Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Fentanyl, Adderall, Ritalin, and more. Schedule 3 drugs have moderate to low potential for dependence, so drugs like Tylenol with codeine, ketamine, steroids, and more. Schedule 4 drugs have low risk for dependence, so medications like Xanax or Ambien, Tramadol. And lastly, Schedule 5 are considered the safest among controlled substances, so medications such as Lyrica, which is known as pregabalin, cough syrups that may have small amounts of codeine, and other drugs. So you can see that the medications we've been mentioning are as the players in the multiple waves of the opioid crisis have really been Schedule 1 and 2 drugs, so extremely high risk for addiction and dependence. And for many patients, they reached a point where you know they were no longer taking an opioid to manage pain, but simply to manage dependence on the drug and avoid excruciating withdrawal. So getting back to federal regulations, the Drug Administration and Treatment Act of 2000 allowed physicians that had a waiver from the Center for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to basically prescribe a Schedule 3, 4, or 5 medication to treat opioid dependence. And then additionally, in 2002, the FDA approved the medication buprenorphine, um, one formulation that's commonly known as is Suboxone, that's how you, a lot of you may have heard it, to treat opioid dependence. Now, these measures have really increased access to treatment for opioid-dependent patients. Additionally, in 2016, the FDA announced public policy changes. So multiple changes were actually made and implemented, including encouraging the development of tamper-proof formulations of opioid medications, increased access to naloxone, which is a medication to reverse the dangerous effects of opioids, as well as increased opioid labeling and increased support for non-opioid pain therapies. The FDA 2016 advisory panel also voted unanimously to require continuing education for all opioid prescribing physicians, regardless of specialty, and increases in quality improvement projects to monitor the outcomes. So how has this actually affected pain medicine? Well, there have been a lot of changes. So for one, there have been multiple advancements in the field of pain medicine for both acute and chronic pain. So there's been a huge push to maximize non-opioid therapies and use basically a multimodal technique. So in other words, multiple different modalities for pain control, you know, rather than relying on any one medication or one technique. So let's break it down by acute surgical pain and then by chronic pain. So in terms of acute pain after surgery, there are now multiple ERAS protocols in play. So ERAS stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery and basically addresses different modalities for pain control done by both surgeons and anesthesiologists that minimize or completely eliminate the need for opioids. So these techniques involve nerve blocks before or after surgery, 
and non-opioid medication regimens and have been shown to be you know, quite effective in better pain control without the risk of opioids and even shorter hospital stays so you can you know, get back home and get back to your life sooner. And then in terms of chronic pain, there have been huge advancements in terms of medications and procedures in our field that have dramatically reduced the need for opioids. Now, that's not to say that there's never a role for opioids, but in the majority of cases, it's really not a path that one needs to go down. And for us, as pain doctors, we really don't look at a pain scale to figure out your treatment. Like Dr. P and I don't go by, oh, you're a six out of 10 on the pain scale? All right, so this is gonna be your treatment. Pain just, it can't be measured that way because a 10 out of 10 for one person might be different for somebody else. So we really look at each individual and their specific symptoms to best figure out the next steps. But let's talk about some of the barriers. Right, so there are actually a couple different barriers. One is access and two is insurance. It's really unfortunate that with most insurances, you often have to first try a more addictive opioid and fail that treatment before being able to try a medication with much less side effects or even a procedure. It can be really frustrating when the barrier to good care really simply does come down to cost. Now with the Affordable Care Act signed into law in 2010 and the additional provisions that came into effect in 2014, patients have had increased access to care with a big increase in the number of insured individuals. It's still not remotely perfect, though, and there are still many procedures and medications that we may feel are indicated, but have ongoing fights with various insurance companies to really try to get covered. This is an ongoing process that we fight every day, but we hope to see some change in the future. The other issue is access to these newer techniques. So we're in New York City where patients do often have access to more advanced care and techniques, but this may not be the case in smaller cities but hopefully these barriers will continue to change and improve both with insurance and access as these techniques become more and more common and really more of standard of care. So that's what's offered everywhere, essentially. And for those who suffered from and continue to suffer from opioid use disorder with addiction and dependence on opioids, you know, because of previously being started on opioids during the earlier parts of the epidemic, the Affordable Care Act has made access to care more possible, though there are still improvements that you know, really need to be made. But many studies have shown that the best treatment uh, for opioid use disorder is both medication treatment as well as psychosocial support. So community programs, support groups, and initiatives to reduce the stigma surrounding opioid use disorder. So to that end, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, released a new update to opioid prescribing guidelines. Dr. P, can you explain? So we started this journey talking about the pendulum. In 2016, that pendulum had swung very far to one side to tighten opioid prescribing, thereby cutting patients off who had become dependent on opioids. This led to more problems developing. And now, the new proposed 2022 guidelines are trying to find a balance, hopefully landing that pendulum somewhere in the middle. The new clinical practice guidelines propose 12 recommendations with the tone of these recommendations essentially allowing for more individualized care and more decision-making left to the doctor-patient relationship rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. The new recommendations were open for comment on the federal registrar until early April. So now the agency will review comments and issue a finalized version sometime towards the end of 2022. So we have things to look to see in the future how this kind of continues to develop. So we've covered you know, quite a bit in this episode, and I think we can wrap it up here. So thank you for joining us in this two-part episode. 
you know, this is a particularly difficult topic, which is so much history, controversy, and heartbreak. And we hope we were able to shed some light on the topic. You know, we think that everyone who has experienced the ups and downs of this, patients, providers, families, really deserve empathy. So thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at thefemalepaindocs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.